invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, a church where he had helped start, had lived there about three years, probably spent more time there than anywhere else. He's now in a Roman prison cell, chained to a guard, and it's been a few years since he's been in Ephesus, and he's writing back to people that he dearly loved, of course. We began the chapter last week, actually the week before we were in chapter 5, and then we came back to chapter 1 last week. But I love the phrase, in him. That's where we started last week. We're going to pick up there this week. I read about William Randolph Hearst, who was a very wealthy media tycoon back in the day before really television or any of that kind of stuff. But he was newspapers and magazines. Incredibly wealthy guy, but he loved art. And he read about this particular piece of art that he, when he read about it, he said, I've got to have that. So he sent his employees on a mission, find this work of art and pay whatever price you need to. And after painstaking search, they came back and said, sir, you already own it. It's in one of your warehouses. He sent them out to search for something he already had. And I'm convinced in the Christian life that there's things we already have that we're not walking in, that we're not living in, that we're not receiving and understanding. You've already been given everything pertaining to life and godliness, according to 1 Peter chapter 1. And so the phrase, in him, Paul uses it either in him or in Christ. He uses it 36 times in this one letter, 164 times in all 13 of his epistles that he writes. So it's an important phrase. The word in means denoting fixed position. And so I want you to get that this morning. This is what you have in Christ or in him. If you're a believer, you're now in Christ, fixed position. You're not going anywhere. He's not going anywhere. So what do we have? Last week we looked at the fact that you have adoption, you have redemption, you have forgiveness. Let's pick up in verse 11. Continuing from the last couple of words of verse 10, but I believe they fit with verse 11. He says, in him, with a view to an administration, excuse me, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. So the first thing that Paul talks about this week in this passage, in him we also have obtained an inheritance. It's literally one word, one compound word, that speaks of something as though it's already happened. In the Greek culture, if something was so sure that it's going to happen, that it couldn't possibly not happen, they would speak of it as if it's in the past tense. So in Christ, you've obtained an inheritance. We haven't fully realized that inheritance yet, but he's already began that work in us. You have obtained. You've already gotten a grip on. You've gotten a hold on an inheritance. I don't know if you've ever inherited anything. I I never have. Both of my parents have passed away. They didn't really leave me an inheritance. In order for something to be an inheritance, typically it means you're related to that person, and it typically happens at their death. So I think it's particularly important for us to understand, as a child of God, you have an inheritance. In fact, in God's mind, you're already seated with Christ in heavenly places. It's all an inheritance for you to enjoy, but it didn't yet fully realize. We'll get to more of that in a minute. But Paul says you need to understand that in Christ you have obtained 
and inheritance. You've been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. Here's the purpose of God. I think it's important to understand that we serve a God who is sovereign, who's intentional, who is purposeful. And so Paul talks about his purpose. His purpose is this, that you would be restored to the image that he created Adam and Eve in back in the garden. God created Adam and Eve in his image. What does that mean? If you looked in a mirror, you saw God? No, it meant they were created in his character or nature. And that got messed up through the fall. That got messed up because of sin. But God had a plan to restore that to us. In fact, in 1 Peter, when it says you've been given everything you need for life and godliness, it says so that you might partake in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world caused by evil desires. So Paul's purpose is that we'd be restored to that original relationship with him, that image of God that he created us in, his character, his nature. And he's working in all things. Literally, the word means to energize or to be active. And I love this. What God makes, he doesn't need a prototype for. He doesn't need correction. He doesn't need like 2.0 or in the case of your Apple phone, what is it now, like 11.1.2 or whatever it is. Seems like every week you're kind of getting a new thing, and I'm convinced that's just to make it quit working. <laughs> I'm a conspiracy theorist. I'm like, you know, Apple wants you to buy the newest and best thing. Once you paid $1,000 two years ago, that wasn't good enough. They're going to make it so that your phone won't work and your apps quit working. Anybody got apps on their phones that aren't working? I do. I got a couple of Bible apps It's like, the developer of this app needs to do something. I'm like, well, if you quit doing something, my app would work. Because it used to. But anyway, I'm sorry. I got off the subject, haven't I? I'm a little ticked off about that. Here's the good news. God doesn't do that. He doesn't need a 1.0 or 1.2 or whatever. What God created is according to the counsel of his will. His purpose is being accomplished. And Paul's... I think literally speaks now about himself and, and the Jewish community because he said, we who are the first to hope in Christ, literally the ones who knew the Old Testament and saw all those prophecies of the coming Messiah, they had placed their hope in that and Paul realized, we've realized that in the person of Jesus Christ. But I want you to catch this. It was all, the purpose was all for the praise of his glory. All to shine a light on God and step back and say it's all about Him. Your salvation is for the praise of His glory. God saves people for His own glory. Through believers, God's glory is seen. So the first thing we have is we have an inheritance. The second thing, Paul says, we have His seal. Look at verses 13 and 14. In him, again, in him, denoting fixed position, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So we have the Holy Spirit. We have his seal in him also after listening to the message of truth. Here's what Paul's saying. 
You've heard the good news of the gospel, and you have responded to it. How did you respond? You believed. You placed your faith there. You placed your spiritual well-being in the person of Jesus Christ, and you have believed. Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. Same author, Paul, says, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Paul's talking about that message that they have heard through the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a believer, you're part of that. You're part of continuing that message to the world as you tell people the good news. That's what the word gospel means. So let me ask you a question. How good is your good news? I've wondered at times, if people just followed us around, again, I'm going back to a picture I saw on Facebook last week. It said, non-Christians don't read the Bible, they read Christians. I've heard it said, you may be the only Jesus some people ever read or ever see. So if somebody followed your life, would they get closer to Christ or further away? Paul said, because of listening to, because of this message that you have heard, you have believed. If you're here today and you, you are a Christian, you've placed your faith in Christ, it's because somebody shared the good news with you. And it may have been, kind of like in my life, it was a bunch of people. It was that I had seen the gospel lived out among people, so that I began to trust it. And then somebody finally explained to me, here's how you can trust Christ on your own or for yourself. You can trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so Paul says, First two verses that we looked at, I think he's talking about himself and the, 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 the Jewish nation. He, now he says, now you. He, he said, we, talking about him and the Jewish nation. Now he's saying you. He's talking about us as Gentiles, as non-Jews. After listening to the message of truth, you have believed. You've placed your faith in. And because of that, you were sealed in him. The word seal meant a stamp for security. You've seen this in movies where somebody drips a little wax on the back of an envelope, takes a ring, and places a mark in it. And what that was saying is, what's in here is protected. What's in here is authentic from me. It's genuine. And so that letter could go out across hundreds of miles if necessary and take countless days to get there. And when the person received it and looked at the seal, they recognized this is the seal of the king or whoever it was that sent it to them. It hasn't been tampered with. Nobody's messed with it. Nobody's added anything to it or taken anything away from it. So when I open this, I can trust the contents of what I find here. And so Paul says, the same thing has happened with the Holy Spirit who has been given to you. It's, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who's the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, he's not an it. I think some people kind of think we got the Father, we got the Son, and then we got this it entity over here. No, the Holy Spirit is a person of the Godhead. He's part of the Trinity. God the Father sent his Son. And when Jesus was here, you remember what he said? He said, I go away, but I'm sending another helper to you, a comforter, someone that will lead you, someone that will remind you of what I've spoken to you about, someone that will give you boldness. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit, which was a promise given as a pledge. So the Holy Spirit, you've been sealed in the Holy Spirit. If you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has stepped out of heaven into your life through the person of the Holy Spirit, not an it, a part of the Godhead. And it's been given as a pledge 
The word for pledge is that word that we use for earnest money. If you've ever bought a house, you typically make an offer on a house and you put down what's called earnest money. Let's just assume the house you're going to buy costs $5 million. We're just pretending, right? So let's just say it's cost $5 million. And you're going to put down some earnest money. I don't know what you put down. Let's say you put down $50,000 earnest money. What are you saying by putting that down? You're saying to the owner of that house, I'm serious about buying this house. Now, I've got to go borrow some money or I've got I to win the lottery. But as soon as I do, I'm going to buy this house. No, it doesn't work that way. But that's earnest money. It's a promise. It's part of the purchase price that's promised for something that you're going to, you're going to receive. So five million minus fifty thousand is what? Well, it's fifty thousand less than five million. I'm not going to try to do math this morning. But that's the word that Paul uses. In fact, some translators say well, it's kind of like an engagement ring. When a guy gives you an engagement ring, it's a promise. I'm going to marry you. Where it falls short, it's a good illustration. But where it falls short is it's not part of the purchase price. Whereas earnest money is, and the Holy Spirit is a, is a promise from God of what? Of your future inheritance, of the fact you're now his child. And while it's fully realized in God's economy, it hadn't fully come to you yet. You're still in the process of being sanctified, being brought in the image of God. And one day, you're going to see him face to face. And so the Holy Spirit is God's pledge, God's earnest money of our inheritance. Redemption is not fully at hand, but we have God's pledge. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee of our final inheritance. With a view to redemption. We talked about redemption last week. That's one of the things that in Christ we've been redeemed. It literally means to buy back, or it means to pay a price for. The people that Paul writes to are, are, are familiar with the fact that in Greek culture, the Romans owned millions of slaves. And if you were a relative of one of those slaves, you could buy that slave out of slavery. You could buy their freedom. You could buy their release. But you had to come up with a bunch of money or property or something to take to the Roman authorities and say, we want that one. And so you would be redeemed. You're free. That's what God has done through Christ. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid the penalty for your sin. He paid the price for your redemption. So Paul says, you have been in him, you've been redeemed, you've been bought back. And it wasn't something we could come up, we didn't have the money. We were tapped out. There wasn't anything in us that we could take to God and say, is this enough? But Jesus, what he did was enough. He paid the full price for our redemption of God's own possession. Literally, the Holy Spirit is our guarantee from God that what he has begun, he will accomplish. I don't have this one on the screen, but if you want to look at Romans, flip, flip over to Romans chapter 8. This is rich. Paul, talking about our deliverance from bondage, our redemption, says this about the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. However, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And then verse 16, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, or testifies with our spirit, 
that we are children of God. So one of the functions and roles of the Holy Spirit is to seal you. He's given as a pledge, but it's to remind you constantly that you're a child of God. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not a believer. But if you are a believer, you have the Spirit of God. And again, what's that all for? First two verses, the ultimate bottom line was to the praise of God's glory. It's not for your glory. It's not for your praise. We receive nothing of that. We are saved and restored to the intended divine purpose of creation to bear the image of God and bring Him glory. So the Holy Spirit's given to empower us. And I'm just going to give you three thoughts here, but there's a whole lot more. But empower us. How does He do that? He indwells us. He gives us boldness. He empowers us. He reminds us of what He's already taught us. We don't even know what we're supposed to say sometimes. He gives us the words to say. He equips us for ministry, so He empowers us. Second thing, He equips us for ministry. God's called every one of you into ministry, and the Holy Spirit's equipped you for that. Now, you may not receive your living from it. You may not do it full-time vocationally, but if you're a child of God, He's got a purpose and a plan for your life, a ministry that He's calling you to, and the Holy Spirit is the one that empowers you for that and equips you for that. It's really a great thought to step back and think, here's what I think God's called me to do, but I can't do that. Bingo. You can't do that. But who can? God does it through you, through the person of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to raise your hand, but I want you to think for a minute. When's the last time you saw God do something that you were a part of simply because he used you in ministry? And you step back in awe and think, that wasn't me. That was totally a God thing. Don't shake my hand or pat me on the back because I had little to do with that other than just being available and usable by God. So that's the Holy Spirit at work through you to empower you, to equip you, and to function through the gifts that he's given to you. If you're a child of God, you've received a spiritual gift, at least one, maybe several. And it's a gift that God will use through you for ministry, ultimately for his glory. So that he shines bright. So we have his seal in the person of the Holy Spirit. And then last, we have this example of prayer, verses 15 through 17. And again, I think this whole first chapter, Paul is, is basically saying, here's why I'm grateful for you. Here's why I'm thanking God for you. Here's what I'm hearing about you. And so this is why I'm writing this. But verse 15 kind of starts a new sentence, by the way. Verses 3 through 14 was one sentence when Paul, when Paul wrote it. He didn't put any periods, commas, punctuation marks, or anything. He's just one complete thought. But then he says, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which existed among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of of him. So Paul says, for this reason, you've received the Holy Spirit. You've inherited from God. You're now a child of God. So for this reason, I'm praying for you, having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you for the love of all the saints. So Paul says, first of all, I've heard about your faith. I've heard the fact that you've placed your trust, your faith, your belief in Christ. He's your Savior. 
And Paul has seen some of that in his three-year ministry in Ephesus, but he's been gone for years. So word is getting to him that the gospel is spreading in Ephesus and really the surrounding area. And so Paul says, I've heard about that which exists among you, your faith and your love for all the saints. Two indications of genuine believer. First of all, they place their faith in Christ. Second of all, they love other believers. And he calls him Lord. I want to stop there for a minute. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ. Or, and Savior, Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is probably part of my testimony growing up, but I hear this a little too often, and that is, hey, I trusted Christ when I was 12, but I made him Lord when I was 15. You don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. And the work he begins in you is a work of lordship the day you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. You may not understand it. You may not get it all. But he's begun a work in you that he is going to bring to completion. He is Lord. You don't vote on that. He's not running for Lord. There's not a campaign. He is Lord. And Luke, writing Acts, said, let it be real clear. And I, I love the sermons in the book of Acts because they're, they're real simple. Basically, God sent Jesus to die on a cross for us, and you're the one that put him to death. But he's the one you ought to place your faith in. So let the whole house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah or Savior, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Paul says, I've heard about this faith, and I've heard about your love for the saints. Remember what Jesus said in John. He said, all the world will know you're my followers. How? By your love for one another. You know, we wish people would know we're his followers just by the fact we went to church on Sunday or just by the fact that we've read the Bible or some of those things. But Jesus said, no, if it's really lived out in truth, it's going to be that you love one another. And you know what I've discovered? Some people are hard to love. Even believers are hard to love. So what I pray, I pray, God, let me see people the way you do. Because some people are annoying and, and a bother. And then God reminds me how annoying and bothering I can be. So if God loves me, I'll also love the people that God's called to himself. So Paul says, I've heard about your faith. I've heard about your love for one another. Same author, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, put it this way. If I had the tongues of men and angels but don't have love, I'm just making noise. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And that's what the world sees. The world sees quickly whether you're just making noise or whether what you claim about Christ is genuine or not. So Paul says, I've heard about your faith, and I've heard about your love for the saints. And then he said, I do not cease giving thanks for you. I think we see a, a little bit of a pattern in Paul's prayers here. You've heard the Acts acrostic that prayer is adoration, then confession, then thanksgiving and supplication. We see two of those in this passage from Paul. To say, I don't cease, first of all, giving thanks for you. Making mention of you in my prayers. Wouldn't it be awesome to know that the Apostle Paul was praying for you? Wouldn't it be cool to get a letter or an email or a text and say, by the way, this is the Apostle Paul I'm praying for you. Well, I got one better than that. According to 1 John 2, 1, Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is our advocate with the Father right now making intercession for you. Isn't that even cooler than the Apostle Paul? 
And if I was in Ephesus, I'd be encouraged to know this giant of the faith was praying for me. And by the way, i got to say this. Where was Paul when he wrote this? He's chained to a Roman guard in a prison cell. I, I just got to tell you, if I get arrested and I'm in a prison cell, whether I'm chained or not to a guard, here's what my letter is going to sound like. Get me out of here. Bake me a cake, put a file in it, or pay somebody. Get me out of here. Get me out of here now. Paul doesn't do that. Paul is encouraging people from dire circumstances, and I kind of wonder how many of the guards came to faith in Christ because he was allowed visitors. So he's sitting here guarded, and he's dictating letters to churches, and they're hearing the gospel on a regular basis. I'm kind of thinking, who was chained to who? You have a trouble sharing Christ with somebody? How about being chained to one that can't run away? So that's Paul. And Paul says, I never cease giving thanks to you, making mention of you in my prayer. And two things I see about that. First of all, is Paul's consistency in prayer. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, pray with thanksgiving. Pray without ceasing. 1 Corinthians 5, 17. Pray without ceasing. Prayer's not something we just do quickly in the shower in the morning and forget about the rest of the day. You know what? You can pray the rest of the day. And people that say we've taken prayer out of schools, no, we haven't. As long as you're there, you can still pray. I've eaten in school cafeterias. I encourage you, you should be praying. So Paul prayed with consistency. He also prayed with thanksgiving. He was thankful. Let me ask you that. In your prayer life, how much of your prayer is about thanking God? I have to confess, there's times our prayer looks like a two-year-old. Two-year-olds do this. Gimme, gimme, gimme. And can you ask God for things? Absolutely. Does God want you to ask Him for things? I believe absolutely. But if all our prayers are gimme, 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 and none of it is about adoration, just just part of our prayer ought to be about just extolling the beauty of God and His person, His character, who He is. And confessing when God reveals something to us that we need to just agree with Him about in confession, but also thanksgiving. A good part of our prayers ought to be about thanksgiving. Well, how are you going to thank God for things unless you're praying specifically and keeping a journal? I'd encourage you to do that and just write some of your prayers down. Know what you're praying for. So Paul prayed for other people consistently and with a spirit of thanksgiving. I'm convicted about prayer because I think it's the hardest discipline. Why is that? Because Satan knows if you connect with God through prayer, he's in trouble. If Satan can get you convinced that you can live the Christian life on your own, <laughs> you're in trouble. So I want you to see the example of Paul in prayer and put it into practice. Paul said, I'm praying that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. And I think the two are connected because I think what Paul's saying is, I'm praying that God would give you wisdom to even recognize the revelation. When God reveals something to you, I'm praying that God would give you understanding of what it is He's revealed to you. So that it doesn't just become mental knowledge, but it's an understanding that it penetrates your life. Paul prayed they would have wisdom to receive and understand the revelation of God in the knowledge of Him. Well, what happened to the church in Ephesus? 
we'll talk about this more during the summer, but I just think it's important to understand. Paul was praying for them that they would have wisdom and revelation from God. He's giving thanks to God for them. But by the time we get to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, one of the letters is written to the church in Ephesus. And do you remember what the letter said? It commended them for a lot of things. Jesus is speaking to this church saying, I see your work, your perseverance. You don't tolerate evil men. I've seen that you're flexing muscles. Doctrinally, you seem to be pure. But what was it in verse 4? He said, I have one thing against you. You left your first love. So the letter to the church in Ephesus in Revelation is this church where Jesus is basically saying, you're doing a lot of religious stuff that looks really good, but you've left me. You've left your first love. So something has happened to this church in the intervening time between when Paul wrote the letter to Ephesus and when John sees the vision and writes Revelation. J.I. Packer said this, Those who know God have four characteristics, great energy for God, great thoughts of God, and great boldness for God, and great commitment in God. Let me say that again. Those who know God have four characteristics, great energy for God, great thoughts of God, great boldness for God, and great contentment in God. A good prayer life needs to be what Paul said. It needs to be consistent. It needs to be planned. And it can be both talking and listening. A few years ago, one of the things God convicted me of was I spent a lot of time in prayer talking. But there were times I felt like distractions were distracting me when I was praying. And I finally realized, you know what, maybe that's God. So I keep a prayer journal now. And if I get distracted by something, I just write it down. And then I can go back to focusing on prayer. But it may be that God's saying, you need to talk to so-and-so. Or you need to pray for so-and-so. Or you need to do this. So just write it down. One of the things I've seen is if, if it's a consistency from God or consistency in prayer, then I believe that's from God. If it's all over the place, <laughs> then I know the author of confusion is not God. That's the enemy. So if you're a child of God, you've been redeemed, you've been forgiven, you've received an inheritance, you've been sealed by God for a purpose through the Holy Spirit, living out your life then, I just want to challenge you to become men and women of prayer. Last few thoughts. If you're struggling with prayer, praying with a purpose, one of the things that helps me is to pray with somebody. If you're struggling praying on your own, then get a prayer partner. I did this years ago with a guy in my church. He was one of my youth leaders. This was when I was a youth pastor in North Carolina. And I just said, man, I'm, and we both just confessed, I'm struggling with prayer. I said, all right, we're going to hold each other accountable for prayer. So we're going to meet at the church at 7 o'clock every morning. We're not going to talk to each other. I'm just going to unlock the doors. You're going to come in, and you're going to be on this side of the room praying. I'm going to be on this side of the room praying. And I'm going to know that you're there praying, and you're going to know that I'm there praying. So what happens when the alarm goes off? You don't just hit snooze 12 times. You realize, i got to get up because Tom's going to be there. And if I'm not there... Tom's going to call me and find out why I'm not there. Well, I overslept. So I'm just encouraging you, find, find somebody. If you're struggling with prayer, find somebody that's a prayer partner that will hold you accountable for prayer that maybe you can pray with, but also follow up and ask you that. Second thing is, you ought to journal. Write it down. Write down what God's teaching you through Scripture, but also write down prayers and be as specific as possible. It's a whole lot easier to go back and know God's answered specific prayers then here's, here's my favorite. 
God just bless them. What does that even mean? I mean, I said religious word. It sounds good, but bless them how? Be specific. There's a guy that prays for me every Tuesday, and he'll call me. And oftentimes, not only will he call me and tell me pray for me, he'll tell me specifically how he prayed for me. And I think it's phenomenal to realize I didn't tell him to pray that. But God, who knows me and knows what needs to be prayed, told him to pray that on Tuesday morning when he gets together with a group of men. So pray specifically. Write it down. Let's pray together. As we bow our heads in prayer, just confess to the Lord if you're struggling with that whole idea of prayer. Go back and think about the fact you've been forgiven, you've been redeemed, you've received an inheritance, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit for a purpose. God's at work in you. Don't you want to talk to a God like that? Don't you want to have that kind of relationship of intimacy with a God like that? So take a moment and just tell him that. If you're struggling with prayer, just God knows that. Just tell him, God, I'm sorry. I'm really struggling. My prayer life is inconsistent. At times it seems like I'm just rushing through it just to say I did it. And ask God today, God, give me a vibrant prayer life where I just see you do incredible things that only you can get credit for. Pray that and I'll close us in just a moment. Father, I thank you for the good news of who we are in Christ and what we've received in Christ. But God, one of the marks of genuine faith is our prayer life where we're not just asking you for things, but we're thanking you for what you've already done. In fact, to the point of saying, God, if you never gave me another thing, just knowing you would be enough. God, create in this auditorium men and women of prayer. And we thank you for your goodness to us. In Christ's name.